Welcome to Own It from Women Lead Change. I'm Tiffany O'Donnell, the CEO of Women Lead Change. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Emily and Amelia Nagoski. They're authors of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. Burnout is for women or pretty much anyone who feels overwhelmed and exhausted by everything they have to do. Not uncommon these days. They're going to be also joining us for our 2020 All Access Central Iowa Conference coming up on October 28th. Hello and welcome to Emily and Amelia Nagoski, authors of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And ladies, if we ever needed a book called Burnout, I submit it is today. Welcome. Thanks. It is a pleasure to talk to you. So great to have you. And this is a podcast, so our listeners can't see you, although they, they will be able to see you at our Central Iowa event in October. Uh, but you are identical twins, which I'm not sure if, if, if people would know that. Talk to us a little bit about that experience and then continuing to work with each other as grownups. We don't have the usual we're twins story. When we were born in 1977, the science was that if there are two placentas, you're fraternal twins. So we were raised as siblings born on the same day, fraternal twins. We were separated as soon as we got to school and the rules of our family, we grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family of origin. And so the rule in the family was you do not talk about feelings. You do not talk about what's happening in the family. You do not tell the stories. You don't share anything at all. So I moved to Indiana in 1998 and we barely saw each other for several years. And then uh, I moved to Massachusetts for a job and we were suddenly geographically close again. And I, at that point, was a sex educator. I wrote a book called Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. And because the best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being is, surprise, her overall well-being, there's a chapter in that book about stress and emotion processing. And as I was traveling around the country talking about the science of women's sexuality, people kept saying to me, yeah, Emily, all that sex science is really fascinating, but you know the one chapter that really changed everything for me was that chapter about stress and feelings. I was gratified because I thought it was helpful. That's why I included it. Um, but I didn't know it would be the most important thing. So I told this to Amelia. Yeah, and I was not surprised because while Emily was moving to Indiana and studying sex science at the Kinsey Institute, I had discovered in the eighth grade that I had a calling and I was going to be a conductor. And that was the plan from the eighth grade. I was going to take all the music classes in high school, be a music major in college, teach, you know, high school choir and conduct choirs and then get my master's degree in conducting and then get my doctorate in conducting. And that's what I did. Um, I followed a very direct path. It was interrupted some because I found this guy who I really wanted to marry and, you know, relationships are complicated. So that shaped the direction, but I went, I followed the journey and went the path I wanted to go. However, I did not learn the stuff about the feelings that Emily mm -hmm. wrote about in the book. Even though I was a music major and I went to a conservatory for my master's degree where we learned explicitly how to feel feelings and be authentic and vulnerable on stage for performance mm -hmm. in service of the music, what I didn't realize is that you have to do that in your actual life too and that that skill mm -hmm. is not, doesn't necessarily come naturally to everyone. I'm dying to hear about how we can learn that, that it's teachable, gives me hope. Before you go on, Amelia, I'm so interested in your professional path. So you entered a fairly male-dominated. Oh, it is, it is male-dominated. I often go to conferences and I'm the only woman in the room among college choral conductors. And I have to think there was some stress involved with that. Yes. In fact, I will not brag about this. So I'm going to say it out loud. She remains the only woman who has completed her doctoral program. Yeah. Oh my god. And this is where the story gets dark. It put her in the hospital 
twice. twice. Yeah. Oh, Amelia. With pain so intense, she literally thought she might die. Oh and I don't gosh. know if you've ever seen your identical twin sister in a hospital, Johnny, crying, and you're a health educator who literally teaches other people how to deal with their health and their feelings. Uh, that was a moment that we had. Wow. So, Congratulations, first of all, on being the only, and I am so sorry to hear how, how that went. It does have a happy ending, yes. but it means that when I recovered from that, and Emily was on tour with Come As You Are saying, gosh, Amelia, people are really digging the chapter about feelings. And I'm like, yeah, remember when I learned that it saved my life twice? It saved your life. Okay, that, that's something. Very literally, very literally. The skills rescued me from what stress was doing to my body and I was just ignoring what it was doing to my body. Yes, absolutely. Being in a male-dominated doctoral program surrounded by 90% men also doing doctorates in music at that school and also being my professors was so stressful, but I was just acting as though it was not. Yeah, did you, did you know that feelings and stress among those feelings are cycles that happen in your body? I didn't know that. No. And Emily was like, how did you not know that? No, I think you're right, though, Amelia. That's something that, you know, we all are like, yeah, we get that pit in our stomach. We know when we can't eat because we feel like we're going to throw up. We don't know why. Yeah. But Emily, you're nodding your head because you actually you understand the science behind this. Yeah. And we are still trying to figure out why I knew this intuitively from early on and why it literally took Amelia into her 30s to 30s. learn this explicitly. Wow. But I have always had a very strong like signal coming up from my body, telling me what was going on, instructing me what it needed me to do for it. So for example, when I was 15 years old, I was, I was a theater kid. Uh, and as a freshman in high school, I auditioned for the play and I didn't get the part. And I, like, I had all this like grief and sadness and fear inside me. And my body was like, Emily, go to your room and just go cry. Just go let it out, go sob. And I did, like, just imagine a 15-year-old kid kneeling on the floor sobbing. And it lasted, like, 10 minutes. And then it was done. And I felt my body go, oh, thanks. And I was over it. And I began meditating around the age of 15, also learning how to like connect with my body and release the things. Uh, and Amelia is looking at me right now like, I, what? <laughs> yeah. What I thought was that as long as there was a bad thing, you were going to be stressed about that thing until the bad thing goes away. And that the only way to deal with the stress that happens and the feelings that happen is to deal with the thing outside of you. Turns out, no. The things that cause your stress are separate from the stress that happens in your body. And you can deal with the stress that happens in your body the way Emily did, just by dealing with the feelings. And then you finish the feelings. I couldn't change not getting the part, but I could process the feelings that came as a result of it. And Amelia felt like she, the, what was going to help her feel better was finishing school. Yeah. And she didn't realize that she could deal with her stress, her overwhelm, her exhaustion, her frustration before she finished her degree. And that would help her be well enough to be able to finish. Yeah, I really thought that all I had to do was plow through and push really hard and get to the end and graduate, and then all the stress would just magically disappear. If I hadn't learned to deal with the stress itself, I wouldn't have made it to the end. I think a lot of us are that way, though, right? I mean, I think we all think, okay, once I do X, once I do Y, once the kids are this, once my husband does this, once I achieve A or B, and I'll tell you the danger in that right now, I don't know about you, but the world around me, my environment is changing hourly, weekly, monthly. We don't know what 
30 days down the road looks like. So we can't even say that. So to put ourselves in that box, to have to rely on something to be finished, we're, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And it has been an essential skill for us too through 2020 as just things just seem to have gotten worse and worse in so many different ways. We have so little control over what's going on outside of our own little lives to know that we can recognize the stress that's activated in our body as a result of all that, complete the stress response cycle, all our bodies natural processes are these cycles. Sleep has a cycle, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Digestion has a cycle, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when you get to the end, your body's like, yay, we feel better. And if you don't get to the end, some not so good things can happen. Stress is the same. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. The beginning when it gets activated, the middle when you process it, it do, you do the thing your body needs you to do. And the end where you're released from the stress into a state of relaxation and peace. In terms of like our evolutionary development, yeah, usually dealing with the stressor required the same behavior that dealt with the stress in our bodies. Like if you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? Well, you run. Yeah, you run. And at that point, there's only two possible outcomes. Either you get <laughs> eaten by the lion, in which case none of the rest of this matters, or you survive. You manage to run away from the lion and somebody, you're on the savannah of Africa, somebody gestures you into their hut and they slam the door and protect you until the lion gives up and you've survived. Yay! Mm -hmm. So the behavior that uh, dealt with the stress was the same as the behavior that dealt with the stressor. When you're being chased by a lion, you run. Uh, when you are stuck in a commute, your physical chemistry response is not identical, but it is very similar. So, but what do you do when you're stuck in a commute? You just sit there and fume and get frustrated and angry and want to punch somebody in the face. Uh, and then you get out of your car or out of the train and you walk into your house and do you suddenly feel like, yay, I'm so glad I'm alive. I love my friends and family. What a relief. Mm -hmm. or do you still no. feel frustrated and like you want to punch somebody in the face and you like take it out of the first mammal you see in your house? <laughs> right. That's exactly. the difference between dealing with the stress versus the stressor. And that's, I think, really important, particularly in the pandemic, because the virus is a threat that we can't run away from. Like, you can't fight or flight your way out of the threat of a virus. I mean, let's say tomorrow there's a vaccine, poof, and we're all magically protected from the virus. Now, these months of stress have built up and built up and built up. Does that mean, poof, the vaccine's here, poof, we're not stressed anymore? No. All that mm -hmm. stress has to go someplace. An example, we talked last year to um, a journalist in Ireland who helped work to legalize abortion in Ireland, where it had been illegal. It's a Catholic-dominated country. And when the vote passed, abortion is legal in Ireland, she and her friends thought they were just going to be, like, happy and thrilled because all that work and all that stress was over. And instead, they got to the end and the vote passed and they all collapsed, exhausted. Most of them got sick because they had dealt with the stressor. The thing that was causing their stress was gone, was over, but they hadn't dealt with the stress itself. So that caught up with them instead. We'll get back to the Nagoski sisters in just a bit. A reminder about our virtual conferences coming up. Our Dubuque event is October 8th. Cy Wakeman is one of our featured speakers there. The Quad Cities, which features Carla Harris, who will share her pearls of wisdom. You don't want to miss that. That's on November 10th. You know, I'm wondering if you know if this is more prevalent by gender. I mean, yes. women, <laughs> it is. Okay. I was going to guess that, but I, of course, that's the world I live in. So 
I should say it shows up in different ways. In the technical definition of burnout, there's three different variables. There's emotional exhaustion, and that's mostly how women experience it. There's a sense of helplessness or that what you're doing is not having an impact and a sense of depersonalization. And depersonalization is universal, but the sense of uh, helplessness is the way men primarily experience burnout. And for women, it's the emotional exhaustion. It's the emotional exhaustion, yeah. So there are going to be people listening who say, I'm burnt out. Yeah. And they're listening to this saying, I'm burned out. What do, you, what do you tell them today? Step one, it is not your fault you're burned out. The problem is not that women are not trying hard enough. It's not that you haven't taken the bubble baths and had the champagne and used the bath bombs and the face masks. It's not that women aren't trying. The problem is that we're facing an uphill battle with a constant onslaught of stressors. And addressing those stressors is impossible. You, it's, it's impossible. There's too many and you can't be expected to deal with them. However, all that onslaught of stressors means that you never have an opportunity to deal with the stress separately. It's not that mm-hmm. women aren't trying. We're trying all the time to be and do everything the world tells us to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, attentive to the needs of others. And if we ever fail in that, we deserve punishment. And that hanging over our heads at all times, of course, we feel overwhelmed and exhausted and yet still somehow worry that we're not doing enough. So yeah, mm-hmm. of course you feel burnt out, but there are strategies. Science has answers about how we can deal with the stress itself and also how to make ourselves feel better right now so that we have the capacity to solve the problems that are causing the stress. We have a list of like a dozen evidence-based strategies, even just for this first skill of completing the stress response cycle. Physical activity is only one of them running. It's often people hear stress management strategies as like, oh, more stuff for my to-do list. Awesome, because I already had so much time. What I've been wondering is what I'm going to do with all this time. What's the most effective way to deal with my stress and my extra time, Emily? I think maybe the most effective exercise to start with is our 24-7 calendar. You literally just draw a calendar 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you draw in a typical week. So what hours are you at work? What hours of your commute? What hours are devoted to childcare and home care? What hours are you sleeping? What hours do you spend with relationships with other people? What time do you spend shopping? What time do you spend eating? What time do you spend bathing? What time do you spend in the house waiting for the plumber to show up? Mm -hmm. What are you doing during that time? So every week is different, obviously, but sort of get a sketch of what actually fits where. And you'll begin to notice if you do that and then you try to repeat that exercise looking for like an ideal 24-7 calendar. Not everything fits. And to the best of my knowledge, we do not yet have a technology that adds more hours to a day. (laughs) Well, let us know when you figure that out. <laughs> and we also do not know of a technology that lets you require less sleep than your body requires. And though it changes from person to person and it's not stable your whole life, it's between seven and nine hours a day. Every day. For sleep. Wow. Just for sleep, right? And sleep is a biological drive. You literally die without it. Emily talks about sleep. She has an hour-long <laughs> talk she does just about sleep. And I always have to interrupt her because she gets into like the nitty gritty and the science. And I just want to say, most people already know that sleep is good for them and they need to sleep. Most people have problems with sleep, not actually sleeping, although that's in the book if you need help with that too. More people have conflict with their feelings about sleep. They feel guilty 
for sleeping because they're supposed to be getting up in the middle of the night and helping somebody or staying up late to make the thing happen. And they've got too much to do. And the first thing they sacrifice is their sleep. And if they choose sleep over the doing of the things, then the sleep feels like lazy, selfish. And we've lost track of the number of women who've told us they feel guilty for sleeping. But there are ways to overcome that barrier too. We'll get back to our conversation a little bit. The founder of Farm Her is going to be joining us on our Facebook group, Connect Unite Inspire. That'll be at noon on Wednesday, October 7th. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This is a hopeful conversation. I guess it's counterintuitive for me to think that you can learn these things. I mean, I just felt like, okay, you're either this way or you're not. There's actually measurements, tests you can take to measure how optimistic or pessimistic you are. And we had some people in the room and we all took the test. And I, me, Amelia, came out the most pessimistic person we have ever known. I did not believe that optimism was even a valid worldview, frankly. I thought that that was, people are just missing the point and not seeing reality. It turns out optimism is a skill you can learn. And the evidence shows that it's good for your health. And you can learn it. It's in our best interest to learn it. So there are some good things about pessimism. So optimism is the right frame of mind for when things are going sort of okay. And there's some obstacles and what you need is hope that you can overcome the obstacle. When the world is falling to pieces and the stakes are very high, that's when you want a pessimist on your team. You want somebody who can look into the future, see the worst possible outcome and say, here's where we could end up we need to like back plan to make sure we don't go down that road. You need that person to save everybody's tuchus. I feel like people are going, how do I do that? And the answer is positive reappraisal. The science shows that when things are hard, they are actually learning opportunities. And this sounds like so dopey and silver lining meme A challenge is just an opportunity, but God, it's literally true. So here's a study they did. Um, you give some undergraduate students a reading to do and then a quiz on to test their comprehension. If that reading is in a nice, clear, easy to read font, they don't do as well on the quiz if they get the reading in a difficult, weird, awkward to read font. It makes the reading of the reading harder, but they come out and they actually learn more. And that's just one wow. very like, obvious example. But I mean, more things like in physical activity, you know, we feel the burn. Like it's when the challenge happens that the growth occurs. Yes. We're going to be so grown up after all this. This is such a learning experience. People quote Nietzsche at this point and say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I would like to call that nonsense. It is not the case that the thing that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. If you get hit by a car, is it the car that makes you stronger? No, it is the rest and the care that you receive afterward that makes you stronger. Rest and care make us stronger. It is not the challenge itself. It is the love we receive from ourselves and from the people around us. The bridges that we build with other people as a result of the need to survive. Yeah, that healing does not happen if we're just left there on the street to bleed out. The healing happens because we invite someone in to help us, to take care of us. And this is another one of those life lesson things that it's a metaphor because everything is, which is that burnout cannot be cured by self-care. The cure for burnout can never be caring for ourselves. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. 
And we say that as people who were raised in a household where you don't ask for help, where you just take care of your own feelings and you do not talk to anybody about it. And here we are writing this book about stress and overwhelm and exhaustion. And we think we're just going to find evidence-based strategies for coping with the stress. And uh, instead, over and over, the research keeps telling us the answer is love. The answer is connection. The answer is being authentic and genuine and sharing your feelings and talking about it and asking for help and giving help and being willing to receive help and having people witness your most uncomfortable feelings and being okay with it. And that, what the science was telling us was in violation of every rule we had ever learned in our childhood. We did not want it to be true. And And we are by far not the only people who were raised to believe that it's just morally better to be strong and independent and not to anyone else. I can take care of myself. I'm an island. I am a rock, whatever. There's lots of Americans in particular who really believe in that like lone cowboy hero ideal. And we thought we were going to write a book about that. We thought we were going to write about a book about science and answers. And we, we wrote a book that is about science and answers, but it turns out what the science says is love, connection, wow. each other. You know, and it's interesting because I'm, I'm talking to you from Iowa, which is, you know, we really hang our hats on that independence and picking yourself up by the bootstraps. We get hit by a land hurricane, which no one's ever heard of. By God, we're going to handle it ourselves. It's nice if you want to help us, but we've got this. Mm -hmm. Uh, So culturally, I think you're hitting it right in the head. Culturally, this is how we're raised and it's probably not serving us well, at least in this way. And especially for women, we're taught that we're supposed to be like able to work the first shift, the full-time job to bring in a paycheck, the second shift of childcare and home maintenance that holds a family together. And in the research, we discovered the term the third shift, which is that time at night when everybody's supposed to be sleeping, but let's face it, some of us are sleeping more than others. And in a heterosexual family, which person is it who's expected to like get up and care for someone who's sick in the middle of the night? It's mom. It's Mm -hmm. the woman in the family. Um, So that's the third shift. There is literally no time in the 24 hours when women feel like they're off the hook of caretaking and they are not selfish for just taking time for themselves. And we've been taught to believe that if it feels like too much, it's because we are not enough. And that is the opposite of true. It feels like too much. It's because it's too much. The amount that we're expected to do is way more than people are built to do. We are not built to do big things alone. We are built to do big things together. I do not know how parents of young kids are doing it these days because parenting of small children, as a species, we're not built to do that. Even just as two adults caring for small children, like it takes a freaking village Like we Mm -hmm. need the other caretakers to come and help because children are exhausting. They're precious jewels. They're a delight. They're a thrill. They're the best thing about many people's lives and they are exhausting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that is normal and healthy and okay. So if you feel like I'm not enough to do this task, that is correct. The task is bigger. We are not built to do it by ourselves. We're built to do it in collaboration and connection. As we started out by talking about how we're better when we do it, with other people like when men are part of the conversation yes exactly we need all of us because if a woman in a family is trying to like heal from burnout and she's exhausted she can't just declare i'm gonna get eight hours of sleep every night everybody 
uh, and have that work out. If everybody else in her household is like, that's good for you, but first I need you to make sure you're meeting all these other needs for me, please and thank you. Everybody else in the household has to value her well-being at least as much as she does so that they're like, we are cordoning off this space and time. No one is going to interrupt you or talk to you for this set of hours. Your sleep matters and we're going to protect it. Because the only cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. To boil this down, while seemingly simple, is hard for a lot of us. I mean, it is kindness, it is gratitude, it is community. These things aren't rocket science. Yeah, like, so take that mother who feels like she has to be up all night doing all of the things for all the other people. Let's say she decides self-care, I'm going to get eight hours of sleep, right? Say she does that. Her family makes the space and they decide we're going to cordon off this time for you. You're going to get eight hours of sleep. We love you, mom. Take care of yourself. She goes to work the next day and at the water cooler's like, hey, Susan, I got eight hours of sleep last night and I feel amazing. And Susan's like, good for you. Self-care is so important. Well, I was up till three making cupcakes for Becky's birthday party, but like, good for you that you got eight hours of sleep. Yeah, it must be so nice for you. That kind of lack of reinforcement is where the community ends. And now we feel like that toxic culture has come in to come attack us again, which is why the cure for burnout is not self-care. It's all of us and really all of us feeling a moral obligation to care for each other. Wow. Emily and Amelia, I can't imagine any further questions about that. I mean, I think that's a great spot to end this conversation. I'm thrilled that... Um, you know, Central Iowa will get to, to hear you and see you uh, at our conference coming up because your wisdom is important and it's exactly what we need right now. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to remind everybody the name of the book is Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking This Stress Cycle. And boy, we need it. Good advice for us all today. Thanks so much, Emily and Amelia. Be well, my friends. Thank you. Thanks. You too. As counterintuitive as it may be for those of us who are feeling isolated, uh, maybe a little anxious and depressed to be around other people, it sounds like that may be a huge part of the cure. I look forward to hearing much more from the Nagoski sisters coming up at the conference at the end of October. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. We appreciate it so much. More information and tickets can be found at wlcglobal.org.